everybody. It's good to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay. I'm a part of the team here. And um, yeah, we are, uh, if you're new to us, in the last like two years, we have been going through um, the biography of this man named Jesus, uh, as told through a writer named Matthew. And today we get to a really important, critically important part of this biography, um, and to dive in, I want to I wanna begin by sort of helping us wrap our minds around what many of us, maybe most of us, and certainly what many, maybe most Christians today sort of think about when they think about their faith. Uh, to do that, let me show you an image. This is uh, an image of an, an early version of Henry Ford's Model T automobile, one of the first commercially viable automobiles sold in the world, right? Very early 20th century, um, he released the original Model T in the year 1908, and this version of the Model T, the original Model T, it took on average about 12 hours to build one car. It took about 12 hours to build the Model T from beginning to end, and then about five years into it, Henry Ford did what many of us know him for. He invented, and I mean, he didn't really invent it, but he sort of co-opted this idea and he introduced the assembly line. I'll show you another photo here. And here's what's really wild. When Henry Ford invented, when he introduced the assembly line to um, the construction of automobiles, uh, the manufacturing time for a Model T, the manufacturing time went from 12 hours to build one Model T to 93 minutes. He was able to build an entire car in an hour and a half because of the assembly line. The assembly line made manufacturing not just of automobiles, but all sorts of things. It made manufacturing efficient and exponentially more effective. And rather than needing an individual person to be thinking holistically about an automobile, instead of having car craftsmen Workers became engine specialists and door gurus and hubcap experts. You know what I mean? Like you would just sit at the same station of your assembly line and every day, one by one, you would just throw that hubcap on. Over and over, you became a hubcap expert. Now rather than having to see the whole, individuals began focusing on single detached Parts And this was really, really good for making cars. Really good. 93 minutes to make an entire automobile. Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company made a lot of money because of the assembly line. But here's the thing. Very few people, very few people at the Ford Motor Company at the time knew how to make a car. You know what I'm saying? They knew exactly how to throw a door on a car or put the hubcap on, or drop in the engine, or tighten the screws, or work on the exhaust, or whatever. But very few people, if you were to say, here are all the parts, can you make a car? Very few could do it. Again, this is a wonderful way to make an automobile, but sometimes failure to see the big picture can be an exercise in missing the point. And I think for many Christians today, maybe many of us in the room, we think about our faith this way, almost as an assembly line. We focus on these sort of what we think are detached parts, and in doing so, we miss the big picture. For many of us, our faith in Jesus is about 
maybe being forgiven of our sins. Or maybe it's about going to heaven when we die. For some of us, our faith is about making the world a better place. None of these things are wrong. These are all true. This is all a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if you're in the room or you're watching online or you're in the theater and you're not a follower of Jesus, one, we're, just, we're so glad you're here. Whenever you're ready to take another step in your spiritual journey, let us know. We'd love to come alongside you. We've got some great spaces that I think could be really helpful for you. But if you are not a follower of Jesus, even you are probably somewhat familiar with this mode of thinking. Because maybe a Christian that you know thinks about their faith this way. Maybe when you ask them about why they are Christian, they might say to you, well, because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a wreck and I've done a lot of wrong and I need Jesus to forgive me of my sins. Uh, because like, you know, I think there's more to life than just living and dying. And when I die, after I die, I don't wanna just be six feet under. I think I wanna go to this beautiful, wonderful place called heaven. That's why I'm a Christian. Maybe some Christians you know say, you know, I'm a Christian because I think the way of Jesus makes the world a better place. That's why I'm a Christian. And this is all true. It's all good. It's all a part of the good news of Jesus. But they are all parts of the good news of Jesus. They make up a much more beautiful whole because Jesus came to accomplish something much bigger than these compartmentalized, individualistic components of Christian faith. All of these compartmentalized, individualistic components of faith work together and paint a picture of the one big singular mission of Jesus. Now, I share all of this with you because the part of Matthew's story that we are in today is the place, one of the places, where Jesus makes emphatically clear the big overarching thing he came to do. A lot of scholars call this Jesus's mission discourse. And it basically goes from the very end of Matthew chapter nine all the way through Matthew chapter 10. And again, here, Jesus summarizes his ultimate mission. So let's begin here, the very end of Matthew chapter nine. Chapter nine, verse 35, the story tells us that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming what? The good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Jesus came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Those two English words, good news, it's a single word in the original language of the text, Koine Greek, and it is the Greek word euangelion. If you've been around Westgate for a while, you have heard us explain this word many times. Euangelion is a Greek word that literally means good news. It was a political term at the time that the Roman Empire would use every time the Roman Emperor, Caesar, would conquer an enemy, a herald would blow a trumpet, and he would say, the Euangelion of Caesar, the good news of Caesar, Caesar is victorious again. And the Christians began using that language. And they say Jesus came to proclaim and declare a brand new euangelion, a brand new gospel. That's, why, that's where we get the word, the English word gospel from. It means good news. 
And what is it that motivates Jesus? Why is he driven to go through all the towns and synagogues and preach and teach and proclaim this gospel or good news? What is it? The story tells us, Matthew 9, verses 36 to 38. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Okay, there's a lot happening here. First, Jesus goes around proclaiming his sort of mission statement to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom, the gospel, and he does this, why? At least in part, because he saw crowds of people and he had compassion on them. That word compassion comes from a Greek word, splachnos, which is a wonderful word to say. And splachnos actually means, it, it means what it sounds like. It means like your guts or your bowels. You know, um, like the first time you had a crush in middle school, you're all looking at me like that never happened to you. You liars. You all had that, right? You had a crush in middle school, and you would show up to first period math or whatever, and there she is, or there he is, sitting across the room, and what happened? Your bowels felt funny. <laughs> you're like, do I need to go to the bathroom? I feel weird, you know? You're all looking at me like I'm weird. No, this all happened to all of you, okay? Right, so, okay, that's, you, you get what I'm saying. This is where the term like butterflies in your stomach comes from. It feels like there's something in there that shouldn't be in there because you are having a bodily emotional reaction to a particular emotion you feel toward another person. That's this word, splachnas. Jesus, but it's not because he has like a crush on these people. It is because he sees them in their desperate state. You felt this as well, right? Maybe you've had a loved one get really sick. Maybe you're a parent, and um, all parents go through this, you know, between the months of September and about February, your kid comes home from school sick, and they're crying, and they're whimpering, and they're sneezing, and coughing, and sore throat. And like most parents, what do you feel? You're like, man, if I could take that from you, Put it on me, I would, you know? Like you feel something, right? That's what Jesus feels. That's what Jesus feels. He has compassion. This isn't just like, I feel sorry for them. He feels something in his guts. What this means is that Jesus' mission is not just, it's not casual for him. It's not just intellectual. It's not just a task on a to-do list. Jesus doesn't just know he needs to carry out his mission. Jesus feels it at a gut level. This is something he must do. This is really hopeful for us because in your desperation, like you, in your life, those moments when you feel at the end of your rope, Jesus doesn't just know how you feel. He feels what you feel. He's right there with you. He's for you. And Jesus feels this way. He feels compassion. Why? Because the people are harassed and helpless is what the story says. That phrase, harassed and helpless, it actually literally means torn and thrown down. 
It's not like, oh, they're just kind of like helpless little people. Like what he sees in people is they are completely torn apart. Society, families, individuals torn apart. What this means is that Jesus sees and understands human struggle, even if and when we don't. He sees us in our torn and thrown down state. He sees us like sheep without a shepherd. That's what the story says. Let's talk about that for a moment. Sheep without a shepherd. And this is going to bring us to the essence of Jesus's mission. If you've been around church for a while, you know this metaphor that the Lord is my shepherd, right? You know this metaphor. And typically, when we think about the fact that we are sheep and Jesus or God is our shepherd, we have these images of serenity and peace. It's because of passages like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And what does he do? What does my shepherd do? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. This is really beautiful. And we read passages like this and we assume that God being our shepherd is always and only about a life of serenity and calm. And it is. Psalm 23 is true. In the chaos and in the the craziness and the madness and the uncertainty of your life, God as your shepherd can and desires to lead you to quiet waters. Many of you have experienced this um, peace that transcends understanding in the midst of the chaos of your life. This is a part of what it means when we read that God is our shepherd, absolutely. But the metaphor does not end there. It means much more than that, that God is our shepherd. Remember, the Bible is an ancient text, right? Like Psalm 23, which we just read, is an ancient text, thousands of years old. And, and over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New, we see again that God and then eventually that Jesus is our shepherd. And we are like sheep without our shepherd and God, our shepherd, longs to lead us, yes, to quiet waters, but it means so much more than that. In the ancient world, it wasn't just God's people who used shepherd metaphor to describe the divine's relationship with humans. In fact, this was an utterly common metaphor in the ancient world. In fact, let me show you an image. This is an image of King Tut's royal tomb. This looks familiar to you, yes? You all watch like the mummy movies, right? Like this looks familiar. Okay, King Tut was a real person, a real person uh, who ruled over ancient Egypt for actually a very brief time. He died really young. Um, His tomb, his royal tomb, his actual tomb was discovered in 1922. Now look at the image of this tomb. What do you see? What is King Tut, the image of King Tut, what is he holding? He's holding a staff in his right hand, but in his left you see this crook. You know what that is? That is a shepherd's crook. Why? Because in ancient Egypt, shepherd was a metaphor for the kings of Egypt. And it wasn't because the kings and emperors of Egypt were really calm and serene and led their people to quiet waters. To be a shepherd in the ancient world was a common metaphor for victorious kings, rulers, and military leaders. 
In fact, in the ancient world, at the time when what we call the Old Testament was being written, shepherd was not a metaphor primarily reflecting serenity and calm. Shepherd was a metaphor that primarily reflected victory and conquest. Some of you know Gilgamesh, the ancient Mesopotamian myth of Gilgamesh. Did you know it's a violent story? Gilgamesh is called a shepherd. Some of you know the name Hammurabi, who was an ancient Babylonian king. His story is not one of calm and serenity. It is of bloodshed and violence and victory and conquest. And over and over again, Hammurabi is called what? A shepherd. Yes, the fact that God is our shepherd means he leads us to quiet waters and brings peace into our lives. But the path we take as we follow our great shepherd is a path he paves with victory. In fact, let me read you another psalm. Psalm 78, he, God, brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through what? The wilderness. He guided them safely so they were unafraid, but the sea engulfed their enemies. That's what God, our shepherd, does. Yes, he leads us to calm and peace and serenity of quiet waters, but he does so by vanquishing the enemies who stand opposed to him and his people. That's what it means. The Bible says God is our shepherd. So what does all of this mean? It means that Jesus' primary mission is victory. What we are going to see in Matthew chapter 10 is that the big picture, overarching thing Jesus came to do was to win. And as he wins, we receive forgiveness of sins. As Jesus wins, we have life after death. As Jesus wins, he begins to create a brand new world full of wholeness and hope and goodness. But the overarching story, the mission of Jesus is victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the writer Paul says this, then the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, again, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew for almost two years now, about a year and a half, almost two years. And you have seen story after story of miracles. You've seen Jesus like heal the blind and and heal the lame and heal the sick and forgive sinners and raise the dead even. And often we read these miraculous healings of Jesus as these, again, individual compartmentalized stories that are like cool party tricks. Like, cool, cool trick, Jesus. You healed that blind guy. But Jesus' miraculous healings don't exist in a vacuum. They are a proclamation of the good news of Jesus that Jesus has come and his mission is to destroy all things that stand opposed to the good news of his kingdom. Jesus heals the blind to declare that in the kingdom of God, there is no blindness. 
Jesus heals the lame to declare that in the kingdom of God there is no paralysis. He heals the sick to declare that in the kingdom there is no sickness. Jesus welcomes sinners to declare that in the kingdom no one is forgotten and everyone can be forgiven. Jesus raises the dead to declare that in his kingdom there is no death. That's why he does what he does. This is his mission. And this is really good news for you and me. As individuals, yes. I mean, let's go back to Psalm 78. He brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the wilderness. He guided them safely. So what? They were unafraid. They were unafraid. But the sea engulfed their enemies. The gospel, the good news of Jesus the mission of Jesus means that in spite of the struggle, the tension, the anxiety, and uncertainty of our lives, you and I can live unafraid no matter what we are going through, no matter what we will go through, no matter what mountains we have to climb, no matter what challenges or obstacles we face, we can live unafraid because Jesus has won. Jesus has won. The story's already written. The battle is already over. The victory is already his. And therefore, for followers of Jesus, it is already ours. And we can live unafraid. I want to give you just 30 seconds. I want you to think right now, to bring to the forefront of your thinking, ponder a struggle or a tension, an anxiety or an uncertainty in your life. Right now, think about it. Just think about it right now something that feels so challenging and insurmountable to you. Just think about that. And as you do, I want you to think about and read and hear read over you these words from the Gospels. John 16, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I, Jesus, overcome the world. The same writer, John, in a letter we call 1 John, chapter 5, he says that everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. You can live unafraid. No matter what you're going through, no matter what challenge, no matter what mountain lies before you, you can live unafraid because Jesus has already won. That's his mission. His mission's already accomplished. But here's where um, Matthew chapter 10 gets really hard. Jesus' mission becomes our mission. If you are a follower of Jesus, up to this point in the teaching, for 20 minutes, you're like, oh, this is good. I can live unafraid. Jesus is with me. No matter what challenge, he did it. Good to go. You're like, what a, what a beautiful short teaching, 20 minutes. Jay never talks for this few of minutes, right? You're like, this is, what a great Sunday. It's, no, we're going to keep going. Because it doesn't end here. His mission becomes our mission. I remember in my late teens, early 20s, um, as a student at, at De Anza College and then eventually at San Jose State, I did what all 18 to 21-year-olds do. I was asking myself, what is the meaning of my life? Right? You all did this. You're all still looking at me like no one did this. <laughs> You're like, no one ever had a middle school crush and no one ever asked the meaning of life in this room. 
You all did, we all did, right? Like, what is the meaning of my life? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Some of you know the name Viktor Frankl. We've quoted him before. He was one of the preeminent uh, psychologists of the 20th century. He was also a Holocaust survivor. And he wrote, he's not a Christian, um, he's Jewish, but he wrote a fantastic book called Man's Search for Meaning. And it's all sort of a series of observations, things he learned about human sur- the human longing for meaning in their lives that he learned as he survived the Holocaust. And he says this about his Holocaust experience. It did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life daily and hourly. One of the reasons why that question, what is the meaning of my life, is so frustrating is because we ask the question backwards. It is not we who ask life What is the meaning you have to offer me? According to Frankel, it is life that asks you, what is the meaning of your life? Why are you here? But for followers of Jesus, it's not even life that asks the question. It is Jesus himself who invites us to participate in the most meaningful sort of life we could possibly live. Verses 37 to 38 of Matthew chapter 9. Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The theologian Christopher Wright says this is a dangerous prayer to pray. It tends to become self-answering, as the disciples found. For if they do as Jesus told them, the very next thing that happens is that they become the answer to their own prayer as Jesus sends them out. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask God, the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into his harvest field. There is a comfortable way to pray this prayer. The comfortable way to pray this prayer is like, Lord, there are so many people who need you, so send out workers. I mean, not me, but that guy and this guy and those missionaries that I send 20 bucks to every month. Lord, send them out. That's the comfortable way to pray this prayer. But as the theologian Christopher Wright tells us, this is a dangerous prayer to pray. Because if you really pray this prayer, the answer to the prayer becomes you. You are the answer. I mean, that's the weird, self-fulfilling prophecy of this prayer. Jesus is like, ask God to send out workers. And then he's just like staring at them, you know? And then they're like, okay, God, send out workers. Where are they? And then it's just a mirror. It's like, oh, it's me. This is still true today. Did you know that you and I, are going through what most social historians say is the most significant religious shift in American history. Did you know we're living through it right now? This is actually recent research, longitudinal research that's been done for the last um, 15 to 20 years or so. And what they have found is that the percentage of the U.S. population that identifies as Christian has declined by 12% in the last 10 years. And, and here's what's really fascinating. 
it's not even people who were never Christian. According to most social historians, and there seems to be really strong agreement on this, right now, like literally right now in 2023, what you and I are living through is the most significant religious shift in our country's history, and that shift is amongst those who are being de-churched. In the last 10 years, 40 million Americans, that's 12% of our country, 40 million Americans have gone from saying, I used to be a part of a church, I used to be Christian, and I am leaving that behind. It is by numbers the most significant religious shift in our country's history. That's what's happening right now. The workers are few because you and I live unintentional, uninvitational lives. We live unattuned, and this is self-indictment. I'm not judging anybody in the room. This is more me reminding myself. myself. I lived lacking the sort of awareness that keeps me open and awake to crisis and quest in my midst. We've talked about this before here at church. To live aware of people who don't know God or who once knew God and have walked away and to live our lives aware with our ears and our minds and our hearts attuned to when we hear crisis, when they're going through something really hard in their life or when we hear the echoes of a quest, when they are beginning to search and to seek meaning and purpose and joy. And this is happening all over the place because 12% of our country once knew God or went to church at least and no longer want anything to do with him. There is crisis and quest all over the place in our midst. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I wanna talk very briefly about church specifically. I just wanna get really granular and then we'll land the plane. The theologian Scott McKnight, he says that kingdom mission is church mission and church mission is kingdom mission. There is no kingdom mission that is not church mission. I know we ask a lot of you, um, and many of you already do this, but we ask you guys to prayerfully consider serving in our church. I just want you to know this is why. Whenever we ask you to serve, it's not because we need two more people in the second grade classroom. When we ask you to serve, it's not because we'd love to have like another bass player. Yeah, we would love all of those things. But every little thing we do, serving coffee, leading a life group, teaching Bible study to a bunch of kids, whatever it is we do, handing out, um, you know, I was about to say bulletins, but we don't hand those out anymore, right? Shaking hands as you're um, coming into the service. All of these things we do, we do because we wanna be a part of Jesus's mission because we believe the harvest is plentiful. And we want people to experience God in a meaningful way here. And so a couple of practical invitations. One, if you are not yet serving, but you, you believe in the mission of God that is being expressed through our church, um, you can just scan this QR code or just go to our website and uh, let us know. And there, there'll be plenty of opportunities to serve and jump in. It's one of the best ways to get connected um, to other people in the life of our church. And maybe you're like, man, Jay, I want to serve, I want to jump in, but I don't know where to get started. Like, I don't know what to do, I don't know where I fit. 
Um, June 4th, Sunday, June 4th, a couple weeks from now, we're offering something called the Design Lab. Um, and we're going we're gonna to sort of journey around. It's not just about serving. It's about finding your purpose, your passion, and your place. So if you're interested in joining us for that, join us for that. And a bunch of our ministry leaders will be there as well just to talk to you one-on-one. And we'll try to get you um, connected. Okay. The passage continues, Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Here's the thing. I don't want to sugarcoat it. If you live on mission with Jesus, it will be daunting and demanding. Jesus makes that really clear. When he says, be as shrewd as snakes, that word shrewd means wise or prudent. And the word innocent, as doves, innocent means unmixed. It infers um, purity of intention. Wisdom and pure intentions matter a great deal because declaring the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom, is confrontational. By its nature, it denies all other kingdoms, and it can provoke antagonism. Here's the thing. Let's just be honest because Jesus is honest. He's really clear. What does he say? Matthew 10, verse 22. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. But even in the midst of significant opposition and tension, followers of Jesus are called to prioritize Christ. Now, let me just be clear. Sometimes people abuse Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated. And what they do is they go on Facebook, they act like, like, like total jerks and like misuse some scripture verse to make some political statement or something. And then other Christians are like, hey, that's not really nice. And then they're like, I knew it, I'm gonna be hated. I'm doing kingdom work. No, that's not what Jesus means here. He does not mean you should be hateful or you should be a jerk or mean-spirited. In fact, the the Bible is really clear that the fruit of the Spirit is stuff like gentleness and kindness and goodness. No, he means that as you share the good news of Jesus, that Jesus has come and he reigns victorious and his kingdom is the only kingdom that matters, that confronts the reality that most people believe that they need to build their own kingdom. And as it confronts that lie, there is a good chance that you will feel antagonism and tension. But even in the midst of that, what does Jesus say? For followers of Jesus, we prioritize him. Matthew 10, 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let me just take a moment to clarify this. Sometimes this verse is um, leveraged, misappropriated, and misused and abused to um, propagate neglect or abuse in our families. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Like, ah, I could just mistreat my family because it's all about Jesus. Actually, the way you treat your family, whether they believe in Jesus or not, is a reflection of God's love in your life. I'll just give you one example. First Timothy chapter 5, Paul says, anyone who doesn't provide for their relatives, especially their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The Bible's really clear that you and I are called as children or as parents or as grandchildren or grandparents or uncles or aunts or siblings, whatever, spouses, we are called to care for our families. What Jesus is saying here is not neglect your family, otherwise you're not worthy of me. He says anyone who loves 
their family more than me is not worthy of me. One theologian puts it this way, following Jesus must take precedence over the natural love of family. Matthew is expressing loyalty or choice rather than actual dislike. Jesus calls not for an unloving attitude, but for a willingness to put him first. This is really hard for me. I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, and I would die for them. And every day, I have to pray that prayer. Lord, I surrender these kids to you. They're not mine, they're yours. And I want you to be the first love, the primary love of my life. And it's not easy. So again, yes, Jesus' mission, which becomes our mission, is daunting and demanding. But it is also utterly compelling. It's a story far bigger than just the individual parts. I'll show you a graphic here. Going back to the beginning, a compartmentalized individualistic faith is primarily about being forgiven of my sins, or maybe it's about going to heaven when I die, or maybe it's about making the world a better place. But a faith fueled by the mission of Jesus is primarily about Jesus' victory over sin, which leads to the forgiveness of my sins. It's about Jesus' victory over death, which is why I get to go to heaven when I die. And it's about Jesus' victory ushering in a new heaven and a new earth, which is what makes the world a truly better place. Matthew 10, 28 to 31, Jesus repeats these beautiful, powerful lines. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So, what? Do not be afraid. You, you are worth more than many sparrows. Yes, the mission of God is far bigger than our own individual compartmentalized renderings of faith. And yes, the mission of God is far too big for any one of us. But we are never too small for him. He sees you. He knows you. So don't be afraid. He's going to take you home whenever and however he deems. I'm going to invite Chris and the team to come back up, and we're going to sing and respond. But again, for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, remember the challenge here is that Jesus' mission becomes our mission. You know, like you guys have seen all the Tom Cruise movies, the Mission Impossible movies, and within the first 10 minutes of it, he always like grabs a cup of coffee that explodes or like a CD that he puts into a laptop and then it's like, your mission, if you choose to, and then it explodes. You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, Man, that invitation, I, I love that about those movies because there's that line, your mission, if you choose to accept it. And the reality is, like, you don't have to accept it. You don't have to. Like, you could do the easy thing. That what I said earlier is like, oh, the harvest is plentiful, workers are few, so Lord, please send workers, that guy and this girl and this person and that missionary and this pastor while I just kind of live my life. You can live your life that way. Here's the thing. If you do, you are missing out on something um, that you cannot possibly imagine. Again, we, like, we're all asking life, what is the meaning of my life? The answer has already been given to you. 
It's to say yes to the invitation to participate in a mission bigger than you. Some of you saw the film Apollo 13 uh, that came out, I don't know, 20 years ago or something, 25 years ago. It's an amazing movie. I'll show you a screenshot from that movie. Who's seen Apollo 13? Yeah, okay, amazing, a bunch of you. Do you guys remember this scene? So there are th- it's, it's the, Apollo 13 is the film about the true story of the actual Apollo 13 mission, which was a planned mission by NASA to send astronauts to the moon. They had already been to the moon, but they wanted to go back. It, was, it happened in 1970. But the mission is a catastrophe. Something breaks, like this um, oxygen tank fails, and NASA's mission becomes not getting these astronauts to the moon, but getting these astronauts back home. And all sorts of things go wrong, and the astronauts are like calling in to Houston, the home base. And at one point, the astronauts are losing oxygen in the little module that is taking them back home. They're losing oxygen because one of the filters is broken. And there's this profound scene where this crew of really smart, nerdy engineer guys at NASA get together in the middle of the night around this table. And this man, I don't know his name, he's leading the charge, and he basically says to like two dozen NASA engineers, he says, here's the deal. For us to get our boys home, we have to make this square box fit into a hole made for this round cylinder using only this junk that is on the table because that's the only stuff they have up there. And if we don't figure this out, they're not gonna come home. And then, if you watch the movie over again and crank the volume, my favorite line in that entire epic movie is like subtly heard in the background. You hear someone off screen say the words, well, someone get the coffee going. Because this guy realized, we're not leaving here till we get them home. So I'm going to make some coffee. That's why our people literally make coffee. (laughs) Because we're trying to get lost people home. You want meaning in your life? Make coffee. And get people home. Let's stand and sing together.